The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named um, Zacchaeus, and he was a ta- chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Good morning, LCC Calandra. How are we all doing this morning? Are we good? Very good. It is good to be with you. Uh, my name is Kylum, as Jared said. Um, pastor of church down in North Lake, so the north end of Brizzy. Um, for those of you who are new, uh, that church then helped to plant this church. So Jimmy and the Smith Cottrells are with us, sent a little bit of a team up here uh, to come and get this church started. And our, our hope, uh, our dream, I guess, is to see more and more churches planted that would make much of Jesus in their particular context. And so uh, I'm super encouraged every time I get to come back to, to see a church that is making much of Jesus, that's singing songs about Jesus, teaching children about Jesus, that preach about Jesus, that just loves Jesus. Um, and so super encouraged at what God is doing here uh, with you today. We are in this, this passage of Luke 19. Um, it's a really, really, really good passage. There is so much in it, and I wish I had uh, an hour, but I'm only going to go for two hours. Okay, so a um, little backstory. So Luke is essentially someone who we think was a, a doctor. Uh, for a gentleman by the name of Theophilus who's in Rome. Okay, so the gospel has spread, and it's gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world, and so now it's come to the Roman Empire, and then Theophilus and the family, uh, we're not really sure is Theophilus one person, is it like this overarching group of people, but essentially he represents a group of people that have heard about Jesus, that are believing in Jesus, but just really want to make sure that they believe in the right thing. They're from a culture and a context which worships many gods and has different ways to get to God, and now they're hearing the good news of Jesus that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You don't have to do anything. You simply receive his free gift, but they're outsiders. They're not Jews. They haven't been born in a Jewish context. They don't keep all the rules and the laws that the Jewish people have kept, and so they have doubts. How do I know this is really true? Because I don't know about you, but when I first heard the gospel, particularly the gospel around this idea of grace, it was like, this just seems too good to be true. I've been sold a few lies before. Um, but to not have to fix myself and to, to, to be better in order to have favor with God, that seems a little too easy for me. And so they're, they're in a similar position. They're asking questions like, is this really true? Can those who aren't Jewish people, who don't follow the Jewish customs, can they also become, quote unquote, Christians. And so Luke gets sent to go and investigate this Jesus. And he writes in Luke 1, 
This is how he kind of opens his letter. He says this. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Listen to this that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke goes and examines. He goes and asks questions. Uh, We find out later on that he's actually had 500 people that he's investigated and asked, what did Jesus say here? What happened then? Tell me the story. And so he's compiled all of these stories into a historical narrative. But it's not just history. It's history that has meaning. This is what happened. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus said, which is good, but it's no good if it doesn't mean anything. And therefore, this is what it means, Theophilus. This is what it means, Roman. This is what it means, non-Jew. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is who Jesus is. And so Luke is writing story after story after story. And here in Luke 19, we're we're getting close to when Jesus is going to go to the cross. We're within weeks of Jesus being put to death. And so what he does in these stories, and you can just keep reading them one after another, is he keeps dropping in kind of these stories that highlight that what Jesus is about to do on the cross wasn't just something that he was doing on the cross. This is what Jesus was always doing. The cross is the culmination of what he was always doing. And so this this passage ends with, he comes to seek and save that which is lost which has culminated, which is kind of concluded in his work and his death, burial, and resurrection. But in every story, you see Jesus is doing this. He's seeking and saving lost people. And in this story, it focuses on one man named Zacchaeus who is lost. And Jesus is saving him. So Luke always puts in most of his stories, he'll have those who are believers. So they're already convinced there are those who are seekers. And there are those who are opposers. And if you go through Luke and read it from the beginning to end, you'll see pretty much all of those three categories of people in nearly every story. And the the reason he's doing that is to kind of help these outsiders understand that you can either be for Jesus, exploring Jesus, or against him. And the question is supposed to be, where are you? And so that's going to be my question today. Which one of these are you? Are you a believer of Jesus? Do you follow him? Do you trust him? Do you delight as we just sung in him? Are you exploring him? Do you, like the, the people in Rome, want to see things for yourself first? You want to, you've heard about Jesus, but you're not 100% sure, and so you're exploring, you're, you're seeking. Or are you like the religious leaders and are opposed to him and against him? So Luke is writing this on the way to, a, to the cross Um, And so I'm going to give you a few things that I think we see in this story. Number one, the first thing Luke wants us to see is that Zacchaeus is far from God. For those of us who are Christians, have you ever had that thought, man, Bob, Jane would be an awesome Christian. If they could just believe, they'd be amazing. In fact, they're more of a Christian than me in terms of their behavior, like that they sin less than me, even though I'm a Christian. Like if they could just believe, they would be an amazing Christian. Or have you ever said, man, such and such is so close. Like you're right there, just 
come across the line. Or have you ever said, man, there's no way. There's no way God could save that person. They are so far from God. These are the categories in which humans think. This is the way that we think. We, we, we think very similar to Jews. There's in and out, there's near, and there's far. And Jesus thinks in very different categories than us. So for us, when we look at the person and go, there's no way God could save them, God's like, what are you talking about? They're not further away than this person who's right here. I can save anyone. And that's what he wants to point out. Zacchaeus is intentionally made out to be, and it's kind of like, this is what he's highlighting. This man is far from God. So it says, Jesus enters Jericho. Okay, Now Jericho uh, has been led by Herod the Great. Uh, he, he obtained Jericho from Caesar Augustus. And what he's been doing is he's building all these aqueducts, all these fortresses, all these buildings. Um, and he's basically doing what many political leaders do is like, hey, we need to do something so the people think I'm great, and then they'll do what? They'll vote me back in, all right? We know how this works in this, in this country. <laughs> okay, this is what they do. Um, but in order to do that, what is he going to need? He's going to need money, okay? In order to pay for all the buildings, all the aqueducts, all the fortresses, all the statues of himself, he needs money. How does he get money? How do governments get money? Come on, all of us, taxes, okay? This is, what, this is why we love governments. Please, take more of our money. No, we don't want that. But the way that governments and institutions have to, have to pay for things, they, they either need, like, taxes or generous giving of donating people, you know, or whatever. But essentially, he needs taxes to be raised. So who, what does he need? He needs tax collectors to go and get the money off the Jews and give it to himself and his, his entity. The Roman Empire is kind of taking ground here so he can pay for his Roman, his Greco-Roman stuff. So if you're going to be a tax collector, what do the Jews think of you? Not great. But guess what? This tax collector isn't Roman. What is he? He's Jewish. So he's not just one of them taking money for them. He's one of us taking money for them. But it doesn't just say that he's a tax collector. What is he? He's a chief tax collector, which means he's an entrepreneur. He had his own little tax collecting startup company that went viral, and he's got multiple tax collectors doing his bidding for him. So now you've got tax collectors that are getting money off the Jewish people, and then he's taxing the tax collectors. So he's sitting back and just making money. So how do the Jews feel about this guy? Oh, yeah. Is he near or is he far? Do they want him to be a Christian or not? They do not. This man is far from God. He rips off his people. He extorts them. He is a traitor and he is working for a superpower because he is a greedy, selfish, uh, egomaniac in their mind. And so... Jews hate him, but the Romans hate him as well. Romans hate tax collectors because they have no loyalty to their people. And if you're, not lo if you're not loyal, we have no respect for you. So he has no home. He has no place. He has no group. He has no status. He has nothing in this context except for the money that he uses to buy things for himself. So Luke wants to say, outsider, not included, not welcome. It also tells us that he's rich. Now, if you read the book of Luke, the Bible doesn't say it's bad to be rich, okay? 
The Bible says it's bad if money has you, not that if you have money. That's the difference in the Bible. You can be rich and be extremely righteous and godly. And I know some of these people who are extremely rich, and they are extremely generous and see all of their wealth as God's, and they will do whatever he tells them to do with it. But what Luke does do with rich is he warns that riches is something that gets into our hearts and eventually moves from something that we have to something that has us. And so there are multiple stories. There's the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. There's a great banquet, Luke 14, parable of the dishonest manager, Luke 16, rich man Lazarus, Luke 16, and the rich young ruler in 18. And all he's doing with all of those is warning and saying, often these are the things that put you, you out. So Luke wants us to see that this Zacchaeus man is far from God. If there's anyone in the, in the context, the Jewish historical context, who should not be accepted into the kingdom of Jesus, this guy. He's hated by everybody. And he's an outsider. And just so you know, I got here a little bit early this morning and I went down to uh, one of your amazing thousands of beaches that you wonderful people have. I get to look at roads and buildings. You guys get to look at sand and beaches and water. It's Sure, I have to repent of envy every time I come up here, but that's fine. I'm, you know, I'm happy to do that. Um, but what I did is I sat there. I think it's called Happy Valley. Is that what you call it? Yeah, I mean, everybody's happy. <laughs> um, they're happy, but guess what? They're all outsiders. And as I sat there, I found myself praying for couples that are walking their dogs with their kids, um, retirees walking. And none of them are walking with Jesus. About 96% of our country are not walking with Jesus. I don't know how many thousands of people are in Caloundra. But this church needs more outsiders to be reached for Jesus because there are literally thousands upon thousands of people who are out there, who are outsiders, who need to meet this Jesus. And I want to encourage you. Tell people about this Jesus. Invite people like Jesus does. So that those people who don't know God, that are far from God, get to meet the real God. And when you meet the real God, as you're going to see, your life changes forever and for the good. So Zacchaeus is far from God. Number two, Zacchaeus investigates Jesus. It says in verse three that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. So you got to think about the Jewish context of hearing this, right? They're like, wait, wait, why is this guy... Why does he want to look at Jesus? Why does he care about Jesus? Why does he want to investigate Jesus? Well, remember, he's an outsider and he has nowhere to go. He has no group except his tax-collecting buddies who he rips off. So the Jews hate him. The Romans hate him. His own tax-collecting employees hate him. And for some reason, he wants to see Jesus. And I wonder whether it's because he's heard that people like him, Jesus has included. Because by this time, there's a man by the name of Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And do you know what his job description was? Tax collector. And he's heard about Matthew. He's heard about 
Mary Magdalene. He's heard about these people who are supposed to be these outsiders who somehow are coming in, and he's hearing about this Jesus, and now he wants to investigate for himself. And so Luke is making clear that there are significant obstacles stacked against this man. It says, but on on the account of the, the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Now, we've all been told that that means that he's short, okay? And that's possible. But that, that word stature there is supposed to kind of say to us, it's not just in terms of physical height, but in terms of sociological standing. He is insignificant. If there is a crowd around Jesus and they're either Jews or Romans and they hate him, he can't push through a crowd. He's not allowed near them. Get away from us. We don't want you. You only get to come to us when you are getting our taxes, of which we hate you for. The, the, the author, Luke here, is trying to get the angst up in our hearts because that's what they would be feeling as they're hearing this story. And so he's a sinner. He's a tax collector. He's ripping people off. He's a traitor. He's rich. So he doesn't need God, nor does he really want God. And there's this large crowd that is obstructing him from coming and seeing this Jesus. Another question I want to pose to you, what type of crowd are we? Our church has had to do a lot of thinking, a lot of praying about what type of church we're going to be. Because as we started to plant our church, we started to form our community, guess what we became? We became a family. And a family is a beautiful thing. And if you're new to here to LCC at Calandra, we pray that this would become part of your spiritual family. But there's, a, there's another side to the family coin sometimes, which is we get so comfortable with our family that we don't want anyone to come and interrupt it. Don't interrupt my rhythm. Don't interrupt my, my routine. Don't, don't interrupt how we kind of operate. Um, and Jesus is constantly saying, come on in. Mess this thing up. And if you read the book of Acts and you read the epistles, every church is just a mess. Why? Because outsiders keep coming in. And guess what? We're all messy. Are we not? We all have our mess. And as we bring all of our mess, you would expect things to feel and seem a little messy. I'm married, have four children. My Instagram tells you we are the perfect family. And we are. Except from Sunday to Sunday, between the hours of zero o'clock and zero o'clock. My family's a mess. Uh, I'm a mess. My wife's a mess. My four children are a mess. But guess what we have? We have Jesus. And Jesus receives messy, broken people into his world, and he restores them, and he builds them, and he equips them, and he strengthens them. So hopefully my family is less of a mess in 2022 than it was in 2020 because we're growing and we're following this Jesus. But we're still messy. Everybody's messy. And so what are the things that are stopping Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus? It's the crowd, it's his size, it's his money, it's his stature, it's everything. And so what does Zacchaeus do? Well, he runs ahead. Okay, again, in, in Jewish culture, men don't run. I don't know if you know that about Jewish culture. Uh, men in Jewish culture aren't allowed to show their legs, right? And so they wear their long sort of robes. And so to run means you have to pick up and then you've got to run. And only children are allowed to do that. Men, you walk. You're in control. You you are amazing specimens. 
You know, and you keep it all together. You do not run. That's why if you read the story of the parable of the lost son and the father runs to his son, everyone's like, what? That's going to bring shame to the father. And the father's like, I don't care what brings shame to me. My lost son is coming home and I will do anything to embrace him. And so the story there is that he runs. And so Zacchaeus, it says he runs ahead. Luke wants us to see that. He wants us to see that he is going further to seek Jesus. He then climbs a tree. He's being vulnerable. He's placing himself around people who can see him, who hate him. They would often have spat on him, cursed at him, thrown things at him in their culture. But yet here he is going to great lengths to investigate and see Jesus for himself. And then number three, Jesus initiates. I don't think he's expecting Jesus to talk to him. I don't think he's expecting to have an encounter with Jesus. I think he's just simply investigating. But here's the funny thing about Jesus. Often often when we're sort of feeling like we're investigating Jesus, Jesus has already been after us for a long time. If you've been a Christian for a while, you kind of thought it was all you're doing to get to Jesus. And then as you start to look back to your story, you kind of go, oh, he organized that. He orchestrated that call. He orchestrated that moment. That happened. That job. That thing. That thing. That thing. And now I'm here. This is how God works. God is constantly orchestrating and doing things because he is going after us. It's not simply us going after God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, let me tell you, Jesus is coming after you. He is seeking you. He is moving things. And the fact that you're here today is evidence of that because he is drawing all of us to him. There is no one who comes to God who says, I got to God by myself. We all eventually say, I got to God because God brought me to himself. It's the work of Jesus. This is why it's grace alone. And so Jesus comes, it says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down for I must stay at your house today. Again, the people who are, who are kind of hearing the story are like, what? Why would Jesus want to go to this man's house? Why does he want to stay with Zacchaeus? He's a sinner and he has his own category of sin. Okay, if you read Luke, it will say sinners and tax collectors. It's like there's sinners and then there's real sinners like this guy, right? It's this this sense that he's a sinner, he's rich, he's a nobody, he has no status, and yet Jesus is like, hey, man, I want to come to your house and eat at your table. Now, think of like, think of that one person who's your like idol. That one celebrity, that one athlete, that one practitioner, that one whatever it is that you look up, up to and go, man, I would love to just have, if I could have one meal with one person, it'd be that. And imagine that person just sees you one day and says, hey, can I come to your place and have dinner? This is even greater than that. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, this is God coming in the form of man and saying, I'm coming to your home. Can you imagine that? Man, I'd get some text messages back to my wife and kids, clean the house like now. Your beds better be made. I don't want to see nothing on the floor. Vacuum that floor, Fletcher, my boy. No, no, no. You don't just get to chuck everything and then close the door. You need to actually put it away. I want you to have air. someone mow, someone whip a snip, do the weeding, get the whole church over, stop church, forget church. They need to clean the house because Jesus is coming, right? You would freak out. This is amazing. Imagine if Jesus came. Imagine if you encountered Jesus and he said, I'm coming to your place. I'd be like, oh, we could just have coffee at Happy Valley and enjoy. That's the happy place. 
And he says, hurry, I must today. This is urgency in the space of Jesus. This is happening, Zacchaeus, and I'm going to come and I'm going to stay at your house. Now, Jesus is 10 days away from the cross at this point. 10 days, and then he is getting crucified. Yet, he's got this huge crowd around him, and he says, in my last 10 days that I've got, I want to go to your place, I want to have a meal, and I just want to be with you. Ain't nobody got time for that. Nobody's got, I don't have time for that. I've got too much, too much ministry stuff to do. I've got to say goodbye to my family. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I want to be with you, mate. Why? Because you're an outsider and you need me. And I love you. And I'm about to go to a cross for you. I'm going to die for you. And I'm going to raise again to new life for you, Zacchaeus. Jesus loves to make sinners righteous. Jesus loves to take outsiders and make them family. Jesus loves to take broken people and restore them, heal them. I don't know how you feel about Jesus, but man, I love Jesus. He has changed my life. He has changed my marriage. He's changed my family. He's changed everything. And not one thing that he's changed has been for the worse. Everything has been for the better. Matthew 11, the tax collector writing about Jesus said, For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then he finishes with, Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, you watch how many tax collectors and sinners Jesus saves. So Luke, throughout his narrative and book, is showing that God, through Jesus, keeps rescuing outsiders. In Luke 7, there's the woman of the street, the woman of the night. She's a sexual outsider. There's the the Samaritan in Luke 10, the racial outsider. Luke 15, it's the younger prodigal brother, the moral outsider. All throughout Luke, he's writing to outsiders to say, Jesus welcomes you. Jesus wants outsiders. Come in and be a part of the family. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus does. Zacchaeus receives Jesus. Verse 6 says, So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus cannot believe it. You want to come to my house? This word joyful here, it doesn't just mean he's just like, you know, and going like he's had his first kiss with the love of his life. This is an emotional, a deep emotional word, which means he is blown away. He cannot believe that this Jesus, the one who he's hearing about and seeing about and everybody is following, wants to come and eat at his place. Tim Keller says Zacchaeus was wealthy, but he was clearly not happy. Inevitably, he was lonely for he had chosen a way that made him an outcast. He'd heard of this Jesus who welcomed tax collectors and sinners, and he wondered if he would have any word for him. Despised and hated by all, Zacchaeus reaching, uh, was reaching out after the love of God, and he meets the love of God in Jesus. In Luke, there is over 20 references of joy, 
Again, showing these outsiders, listen, that pantheistic, that, that Roman life that you're living, it's promised all of these things. You can have all of this. You can live at the beach. You can retire here and everything can be beautiful. You can do all of these things in your life. But if you truly want to experience deep, lasting joy, receive Jesus. Because that's where the joy is. Why? Because you and I were made by God and for God. And so the only way we'll experience the joy of God is to be connected with God, to know God, to delight in God, to enjoy God, to walk with God, to be forgiven by God, to be empowered by God. For those of us who are Christians, this is why following Jesus is so great. And maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And maybe your, your view of God and your view of Jesus is that if you, if you come and follow Jesus, it's going to squash all of your desires. You're going to have to resist all of the good things in this life, and you're going to just have to be miserable and just obey the hard taskmaster. Well, my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, once wrote this. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Another thing that C.S. Lewis says is that he thinks that our desires are not too high, but actually they're too small. So we allow ourselves to be satisfied by the menial things of this world, by the temporal things of this world, like money, relationships, houses, possessions, positions, power. These things, these things entice us. These things are our desires. And he's kind of going, that we shouldn't try and shrink them. We actually need to lift them even higher than that to say, but those things don't last. The house that I currently live in, one day is going to be somebody else's something else that they're going to do something with. Most likely tear it down and build another one. So I can invest all I want in it and, have all, and make it my thing. And then in 100 years, it doesn't exist anymore. My kids are telling me that the TV that I spent like, I don't know, $2,000 on 15 years ago is useless. It's horrible. The pitch is terrible. Why don't we have an 8,000K size, 50 million? And I'm like, great. When you raise your own money, you can buy that new TV and put it in this house. That's fine with me. Um, and I just have to remind them, all of these things that you want, they're not bad. But this TV, it cost me this much money, and within 10 years, 15 years, it's, it's worthless. Now, mine is flat. It's not one of those curved ones that some of us would remember. Okay? When you encounter Jesus, you receive true, lasting life. Your soul was made for connection to God, and it comes alive. When you receive Jesus, you receive love. Because Jesus has been pursuing us, because he loves us, and he makes us his sons and his daughters. When you receive Jesus, you receive forgiveness. So you don't have to carry your shame. You don't have to carry your past anymore. It is gone. That, for me, is good news, because i got some past that I don't want to tell people about. But I meet Jesus, I don't have to try and hide that anymore. I can walk into his throne room and go, yeah, that's the real me. That's the one with the story. And Jesus goes, great, clean slate, you're new. That doesn't define you anymore. It might explain some things about you, but no longer defines you, Kyla. You're a new creation in me now. Your identity is now in me. Forgiven, clean, free. It is amazing to be free. You receive hope, hope in your future that God is able to turn all things around for good and will finish what he starts in your life. Hope in your present that you are never alone, that the God of the universe is right there, right here, right now with you in whatever it is that you are going through. 
hope in your past that God won't waste it. That even the things that we make mistakes in and our sin kind of does back there, even though that that is bad, God still promises he'll even use that for his glory and your joy in the future. And I am a testimony of that because I'm able to share things about my past with our church often that when I'm pastoring people and they're able to see that there's hope in their mess and their sin because once I was in that same place and now I'm free. You have a story. When you meet Jesus, your story enters his story and now it becomes a powerful story. This is what you get with Jesus. You receive meaning. You are no accident. You were born not by chance, not by randomness, but because God purposed and destined you to be here. You live in Calandra because God purposed and destined you to be here. Everything we do now has meaning. Nothing is meaningless. I love that. You have peace. You have peace with God because you're no longer an enemy of God. You're a friend. A friend of God. That's crazy that he calls us his friends. We have peace from God. In 2014, I had a mental and emotional breakdown where I could not get out of my bed, out of my house for nine months. I got diagnosed with a disorder, an anxiety disorder, that still troubles me to this day. But guess what God keeps doing day after day for me? He gives me his peace when I don't have any. And I do all of the things that my therapists and my counselors, I'm still on medication, will continue to do all of those things. But all those things are only going to do so much. I need not just peace with God, I need the peace of God. And I can tell you, I've tangibly had times where I am just in a meltdown and I feel the presence and the peace of God that is with me. And you can have that going into that board meeting, going into that difficult conversation with that employee or employer, having that difficult conversation with your spouse, whatever it might be. You can have the peace of God. And Luke really wants to say that you can have actually true joy. Satisfaction of the soul that cannot be taken despite circumstances. So whether it's a beautiful sunny day and you get to go down to Happy Valley, or whether it's storming and raining and you're getting stuff going on, whether there's COVID, whether there's no COVID, whether there's whatever, true joy because it's eternal, because it's found in the eternal one, stays. It's amazing. And people who don't have that, can ask you questions and go, how do you remain joyful despite what you're going through? And we get to say, well, it's not mine, it's another's. It's not because I'm good, it's because he's amazing and he gives me something that lasts everything, including my troubles, including my struggles. Number five, religious leaders reject Jesus. So when they saw it, I love this, they all grumbled. Oh, here we go again, helping somebody. Oh. This Jesus guy, he's just nice. You know what I mean? Sometimes you want to go back and go, dude, he's like healed this person, he's done this, but like just stop being miserable. <laughs> I want to say something else there, but I won't. Luke wants us to see that Zacchaeus is joyful, religious people are miserable. See, if you're new to faith, Christianity is not supposed to be seen through the lens of religion. Religion is. I do, therefore I get. I work my way up a ladder, big guy in the sky welcomes me. So every time a religious person obeys a rule, what's the motivation? To get to God, to please God. This is every religion. This is every 
pantheistic religion. They're always trying to appease the gods. They're always doing these things so this guy won't be angry with them. The religious Jews are doing the exact same thing. They're keeping the Sabbath. They're doing all of these rituals. They're doing all of these things, but for the wrong motivation. So it brings no joy to them. They're miserable in their faith because their faith is in themselves being good enough to appease God. Christianity is so joyful because you've realized that it's not your obedience. It's not your doing that makes God love you. It's because he is love and he is loving you. And so on your worst day and your best day, he loves you. Now, in light of that, you've already got the approval of God. You've already got the love of God. There's nothing you can do to get more of it. Now you're free to obey and live out your faith. This radically changes your experience of Christianity because now everything you do is not to get from God, but because you've already got from God. I'm already saved. I'm already right with God. He already loves me. He already approves me. So now let me have the best crack I can to live for him. And when I mess up, I don't go, oh man, I've got to make up. Dang it. I've got to make that right. So I do that with my wife. I do that with my kids. I was sick recently uh, for about a week. Didn't have COVID, just so you know. And my wife had to sleep outside on a little mattress, which was thin and uncomfortable for about five nights. So on the Friday when she had a day off at work, I went out and I mowed and I whippersnipped everything. So it looked beautiful for her. And then I said, honey, you sleep in the bed on your own. You just, you just take that thing and I'm going to go sleep out there. What was I doing? I was feeling guilty for what I put her through for the past week and I was doing things to make up. I could have just went, hey, I love my wife. I just do that every weekend. <laughs> She'd be happy uh, if, the, if the lawns were mowed and, you know, the whippersnipping was done all the time. You get my point, right? So a Christian life is a joyful life. A religious life is a miserable life. One is receiving freely from God. The other is paying off and appeasing God. One leads to joyful work. The other is all miserable, hard work. Why do they grumble? Because they have worked their butt off for years to be right with God. And this guy who's ripping everybody off is a traitor, is a sinner, is rich. What, he just gets to come in and like that, Jesus is having a meal with him? Are you kidding me? Does this resonate? That's how it works in the kingdom. Because nobody's working off nothing. Jesus just freely receives you wherever you're at. And he starts working on you from there. There is no working your way to God. There is no ladder. All there are in the kingdom are tables. We just sit at the table with God. And that's a crazy thought right there, that you and I get to sit at a table with Jesus. One day we're going to be eating with Jesus around a table. And nobody's story is going to outdo the other person's story. So some of you have been Christians your whole life, and sometimes you feel guilty because you don't have the crazy salvation story. Like, man, I was on drugs for 17,000 years. And like, I was like in jail for 1,400 of those 17,000 years. And I was like, look at me, like, but God did something crazy. And then we go, oh, the kid who grew up in a Christian home and was discipled by his parents and never touched a drug, has never done anything his whole life. Yeah, I mean, it's cool, but mate, old mate over here, that's a story. Uh-uh. 
They're both stories equally of the grace of God. That God will take the one who is far away from him and the one who is just being religious for the sake of being religious. They're all the same. It's just come in and let me eat at the table. Sit at the table. Eat with me. And how does Zacchaeus respond? Number six, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Did did Jesus ask him to do this? Did Jesus say, hey, man, if you're going to follow me, you better be tithing. Hey, you better be Sabbathing. Hey, that alcohol thing. You know what I mean? Some of you know what I'm talking about. I see the guilt. I see the guilty faces. They're like, oh, man, he's got onto one of my ones. Um, Jesus doesn't say, hey, man, if you're going to follow me, this is what you've got to do, right? He's experienced Jesus, and now in light of that, he's like, I'm changing. He's had a heart change right here. He's like, I, have, I see what I've done. I have been basically defrauding people. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Now, in many ways, that sounds like the promise you make to God, like we're like, hey, man, if you'll save me, uh, I'll do anything for you. And then he's like, cool, go to Ukraine. And you're like, but Ukraine right now. You know, you're like, no, I won't do that thing. You ever done this? Am I the only one who's ever made the deals with God? Okay, so fair enough. That's all right. Uh, There was this one time when me and my friends, we were egging. I don't know if you've ever egged anyone before, but this is something that you do when you're like 17 and think things are funny and you don't think about danger. And so we were, we were sitting on the side of a road. It's, it's near the QE2 Stadium. There's, it's a three-lane sort of dual causeway type thing, right? So it's quite a busy road. We're sitting up on this. It's really thick bushland, so we can sit up here and we can just pick eggs like, and just hit as many cars as they're going past at night. So we, we used to do this every Friday night. We thought it was amazing. And we'd have, we'd have a points tally of how many cars you hit, and you get more points if you can hit this and that. Anyway, it was, don't do it, okay? You're all too old for this. Okay? So we're doing that, and then one, one night, as we're you know, pegging our things, a car decides to stop and slams on its brakes. And then it reverses right to where we are. And then, like, because we're 17-year-old boys, these four grown men hop out of the car, and then they open their boot. And guess what they've just been doing in the afternoon? They've been golfing. So they just start getting golf clubs out of the car, to which my, me and my five mates, we all go, see ya, and then we just bolt, and we just run as fast as we can because we realize grown men are coming for us with golf clubs. And so as good friends do, you ditch your mates and just think about yourself. And so we just all flee, and then... I'm running for like 40 minutes and then I'm hiding sort of under this bush tree thing and all I can hear is like golf clubs being swung around and just, kitty, 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 kitty. And they're just walking through this forest trying to get us. And guess what I did? I prayed to Jesus and I said, if you will save me, I will follow you for the rest of my life. I will double hands it in worship. You know what I mean? I won't one hand in the hand in the pocket. This things, these things, I will sing so loud, I will read the book. I'll pick it up from my mum's office and I'll read it. I'll never swear again. I'll never lie again. I'll never do any. Just save me. And guess what? Eventually they left. We kind of all rallied. We said that was the funnest night of our lives. Let's do it again the, the next Friday night. And all my promises to God went out the window and we went and did it again and I didn't follow Jesus. 
That's how religious people work. They do things to get something from God. Zacchaeus is not that guy. Zacchaeus is not saying, I'm going to do this so that Jesus will welcome me. He's already been welcomed by Jesus. Jesus is in his home, sitting at his table. He's had an encounter with Jesus, and it is transforming his life. And he automatically goes, I don't want to live this way no more. I don't want to be this guy no more. I want to follow you, and I'll do whatever that is. And so he says, I'll I'll give away. And he calls him Lord, Kyrios. Lord, this is a turnaround. This is a massive, massive turnaround. His idol has been money, and now he's giving it away. His money has led him to be the outcast, and now he's been incast, brought in, and because he's been brought into Jesus, now he's like, I don't need money anymore. I'll give it all away. This is what happens when you encounter Jesus. C.S. Lewis also said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything. I, I can't see my neighbors the way that I used to see my neighbors. I cannot. I can't ignore them anymore. I cannot ignore them. There are people who I work with and sit with at cafes. I cannot See them how I once saw them. I've got people who don't like me. And I used to get angry about that. And now I pray, whether they like me or not, I want them to love Jesus. I don't care how they feel about me anymore. How about you? How has the gospel of Jesus Christ transformed you? What has it done for you? And for those of you who maybe been a Christian for a while, have you lost some of that? Where this thing just blows your mind. And how can we not follow Jesus? How can we not give him our whole lives? How can we not? He's just so good. And so what happens? Jesus saves him. And Jesus said to him today, Salvation has come to this house. Did salvation come because he gave away his money or said he was willing to? No. It comes because he's now received Jesus. The evidence of that is where money is in his, in his heart, which is that no longer is the king of his heart, Jesus is. That for him is the evidence. For some of us, it's something different, right? We've, we all had our things, but this is what it is for him. Today, salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Salvation has come is past tense. This is not something that is going to come. This is something, it's done. That's what I love about Jesus. On the cross, it is finished. It is to telestai. It is done. It is complete. Not do, done. And now in light of the done, now do. This is the gospel. He's a son of Abraham. Why? Because he's a man of faith. He's received Jesus by faith and he's responding by faith, and then I love how he finishes, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Hey, you guys in Rome, Theophilus, all those of you reading this, talking about you. Those in Calandra, in this room today, he's talking about us. Because we weren't there in the first century, we weren't Jewish people there. We were like the Romans. We were outsiders. And Jesus has made us insiders. 
This gives me great encouragement because there are people who I think God can't save. I doubt that he can save my neighbours. I doubt he can save those people who I'm running into in cafes. I doubt that sometimes he can save some of my family members. And I pick up and I read the book of Luke. And Jesus keeps saving people. Because if people meet the real Jesus, he saves them. Question, are you saved? Have you followed Jesus? Have you put your faith in him and received him joyfully into your life? And if you have not, come meet him. He's amazing. And if you have, how's your faith in him? Where is it at? Does the gospel bore you because you've heard it so many times? Or does it still bring you to tears? Does it bring a smile to your face? Do you, do you sit there and you ponder the glorious nature of our King Jesus and go, man, I am so grateful for this thing called the gospel of grace. I delight in Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.